Uh, today's reading is uh, taken from Revelation chapter 5, verse, verses 1 to 14, and I think it's 1030 in the Bible. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, do keep that passage open. Let's come to the Lord in prayer now. Lord Jesus, we confess that we can hardly see how worthy you are to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Lord, please open our eyes this morning. Help me in my sinfulness and weakness. Help us all in our natural spiritual blindness to see more of who you are and to sing of you to you. Amen. Well, who is in control of your life? The dominant narrative in our culture is, I am. 
I have the right to define myself. That's what our culture says. We are captains of our fate, masters of our souls. We define who we are. We don't just have iPhones. We live in an i-world. Whether it's the language of the 60s song Chicago, we can change the world, rearrange the world, it's dying. Let a man live his own life. It's dying. Rules and regulations, who needs them? Or more contemporary, Rihanna, uh, I'm, I'm reliably informed she'll be singing at the, uh, or has already sung. I, I forget the time difference, whether the, the Super Bowl has already taken place or not. Is it still to take place? One o'clock this, this morning. There you go, I'm out of date. Anyway, one of her songs, The Minute You Learn to Love Yourself, You Would Not Want to Be Anyone Else. Looking even at the banners at the university yesterday, here they are. Be yourself. Be pioneering. Be impatient. Be confident. Be bold. Be daring. Be tenacious. Don't just rewrite the rules. Change the game. Now, those of us who are interested in history and philosophy will know that some points the Renaissance, some the Reformation, some the Enlightenment, some the sexual revolution, the emancipation of humankind from the shackles of religion. So the idea that God might be in control of our lives is anathema to contemporary ears, isn't it? And we would expect as we absorb the atmosphere of our culture that just a little bit it might grate that we are not in control of our lives, that God is. That the book of Revelation suggests that we are one of two kinds of people. We either worship God love God and live for him, or we worship Satan and will suffer his fate. That's true of every one of us in this room. It grates that we're not those who make free choices, who define ourselves, who do whatever we want, who follow our hearts, follow our feelings. That surely is freedom to be bound to another, to worship another, to live for another, to obey another, for, to sing about another, doesn't seem free. And we all struggle with this, don't we? Now, we've seen from the book of Revelation how to be Christian is to be in this battle, which we need to win. We are to be those who conquer like our master, Jesus Christ, has conquered if we worship him, if we worship God, if we are faithful to the testimony of Jesus Christ and his word, if we endure. But it's a battle that we're all in the battle to worship God. Uh, and last week we saw how John sees into heaven and time seems to just slightly go out of the window and you're not quite sure whether this is the eternal world or not. But here is the creator in his beautiness, his beautiful holiness rather. And so all of heaven, verse eight says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And we learnt last week that the whole of heaven is 
worshipping the beauty of the Creator with liturgy, with words. And now in chapter 5 enters another being into the throne room, the Lamb, who is worthy of worship. And that's the majority of what we'll be thinking about this morning. The Lamb is a worthy sovereign, so worship him in self-emptying song. <clears throat> I don't know what you thought of Queen Elizabeth II. Her character, was she worthy of honor and uh, affection? I, I think so. Don't know what you think. Don't know what we think of King Charles, soon to be, or William, or Harry. There's a lot, lots of debate, aren't there? What is it that makes Jesus a worthy sovereign, a worthy king, not just worthy of thought, but to be the one who is worthy of your and my worship, your and my life, to define ourselves, not by ourselves, but by him, to die for if need be, as many reading Revelation did. See, John sees a scroll which is at the right hand of God, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. It's not that God has hands. It's a, a metaphor, isn't it? It's a picture that God acts through this scroll. And the scroll is written within and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals, and they're going to be opened in the, the following chapters of Revelation. But the, the angel that's there is proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to be in charge of history from beginning to end? And we'll see in chapter 6 that the seals are broken and out comes famine and war and pestilence and economic ruin and martyrdom. Who is worthy to be in control of all this? And no one is found. Who is worthy? And so John weeps loudly, verse 4, because no one is found worthy to open the scroll or even look into it. He weeps loudly. Now, there are people who claim, aren't there, that, that there is no God and that therefore there's no purpose to history, uh, and this is freedom. People like Nietzsche, if you've any read of any of his stuff, or maybe Sam Harris or... Uh, Stephen Pinker or, well, it's, it's just in the airways, isn't it? Loads of people are saying it, but is it true? Does atheism lead to happiness? This life being completely meaningless is, oh, yeah, it's great. No purpose to history, no one in control of history is a great and deep grief. Maybe we experienced it before we became Christians. I certainly did. Maybe we're experiencing it now because we've given up on there being a purpose to history. But we don't follow it through to its logical conclusion, do we? We have friends and, and family and, and neighbours who don't follow it through to its logical conclusion. If there is no God, if there is no purpose to history, if this whole universe is just heading for the big crunch or the big freeze, whichever it might be, well, it makes no difference whether you're Hitler or Mother Teresa. 
It makes no difference whether you're Putin or Zelensky or the head of the Ku Klux Klan or Nelson Mandela. It makes no difference because when we die, we rot and this universe dies and ceases to exist and all memory is gone. And it's true to say that all the world's a stage told by an idiot signifying nothing. If there is no God, if there is no creator, if there's no purpose to history, then there's no difference in how we act. And people may say, well, I've got purpose in my work or my relationships or my family or my holidays. But they're all meaningless. And if we just key into that reality for a moment, we would weep very loudly, very deeply. And there's no point to live, really, as sadly many people act out as has been in the news recently. But thankfully, praise God, and this is one of the motivations to tell other people about the good news of Jesus, isn't it? Praise God, there is one who is in charge of history. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. What joy, what transformation. There's a reason not to be weeping so deeply and loudly, John, because behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered He's been raised. He's defeated death. And because of that, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Why is Jesus worthy to be in charge of history, to be in control of history? He's won the battle. The battle that you and I are in with our great enemy, Satan. How? How did he win? Well, they see, or John sees, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, still acting as though it had been slain. See, we've seen the throne, the beauty of God as creator, and now we see picture upon picture of this being who is worthy to be in charge of history. He's a lamb who was slain, a sacrifice that was made that meant he conquered. And so he has seven horns, perfect strength, seven eyes, perfect knowledge. Uh, there's the seven spirits of God which are sent from him into all the earth. He has perfect spiritual power and presence because he was slain. Now, just as an aside, before we go into that, which I think we want to dwell on, don't we? I don't know if you're ever having the experience as we're reading the book of Revelation. You're just thinking, oh, oh, I don't really get that picture. Oh, and there's another picture. Oh, I don't really get that picture. Oh, and there's another picture. What? What's happening? My, my mind just sort of has this little white flag coming up out of it. Yeah? Do you ever have that? It's supposed to be like that. And, I, and I'm, I'm sorry I haven't said this before, because if we think we can get our minds around this fully, we've missed the point. Revelation is trying to say, look, this is... This is the appearance of the glory of God. This is a bit like what the Lamb of God who was slain is like. Picture, picture, picture. And we're left with mystery, awe, wonder, worship, joy, that this is beyond our puny human little minds because it's eternal reality. We just can't get our heads around this. But God has revealed enough for us to sing, to sing about it. You see, what happens is, 
uh, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and, and the, the elders sing a new song. In other words, here's the one who is worthy to be in charge of all of history because he died on a cross for people like you and me. That's why he's in charge of history. And so they sing, worthy, a new song, uh, the song of the new creation, the song of the redeemed. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why is Jesus worthy to be in charge of history from beginning, from the Big Bang, whatever it is you think is to happen at the beginning, from the beginning to the end? Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and people and nation. Why is Jesus worthy to be in control of history? Why should we sing 24-7 to him and about him because of his death? It's such a wonderful death, wasn't it? Wasn't it a wonderful death? I mean, you'd want him to be in charge, wouldn't you? He knows what it's like not to just to be at the bottom of the pile, but tortured to death in agony through an unjust trial, spat upon, and yet he had all power, infinite power. He could have come off that cross and obliterated everybody before him, but he, as the hymns put, he was bound to the cross. He was held to the cross by his love for people like you and me. I mean, what a king, what a sovereign. I mean, you want a captain who knows what it's like to, to play the game at its lowest point. You, you want a boss who understands what it's like to do the dirty jobs, don't you? You want a person who is in charge, who is both loving and just, and the one in charge of history died a brutal death to ransom, to pay for people like you and me. He had all power, but he surrendered his hands and feet to nails, his back to a beating, his beard to being ripped out, his side to be skewered. He was slain. He bled the one with all power that was powerless. The one with all knowledge was betrayed. The one who created all people died for people like you and me. Is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of my worship? Is he the most beautiful being in the universe? The best being, the greatest being? Oh, of course, yes, of course. Can't say yes enough. So why don't more people worship him? Why are we in such a minority? Well, actually, we're not, if we have but eyes to see. Verse 11, then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and praise. He is praised by billions. 
and where to join in, where to stop living for ourselves, stop to defining ourselves by me and my choices, start to tune in to the song of heaven, because everything was made by Jesus, for Jesus, to praise Jesus, because he was slain for us to worship him, to live for him, to glorify him, to love him, to obey his commands. It's what heaven is about, it's what the universe is about, it's what this morning is about, and this afternoon, and this evening, and tomorrow, and on and on for eternity, because he is in control of all history, even your life and mine, for himself. And we think, well, isn't this all a bit self-centered? I mean, if I were a human being who said, I've, uh, I've uh, arranged this room for me. Uh, I've organized this thing for me so that people praise me. You'd rightly think, well, that's a bit vain, egotistical and proud. So why is it okay for God to be like this? We've got to be clear on this because our world is pressing in on us saying, that this is a wrong thing for God to be like. But no, if God stops living for his own glory, he ceases to be God. If Jesus is God, were to stop being the center of everything, he would cease to be God. If, if God is infinite beauty and the source of all beauty, if he does not admire himself, he ceases to admire that which is infinite beauty, and God then becomes an idolater. Perish the thought. God must be the one who delights in himself, commands glory for himself, commands the, all of his creation to sing to him because he is the source of all life, the source of all goodness, the source of all praise and thanksgiving. He of all beings deserves praise and thanksgiving. And he's not some egotistical tyrant. No, he went to be tortured on a cross so that we can do that. He is humble. See, the very reason why it's wrong for people like you and me to make life about ourselves is not just because it's vain and proud before other people. It's because it's vain and proud before God. It's a desire to be God. It's that desire that Adam and Eve were tempted to indulge. You'll be like God. Be God in God's universe, and life will be fine. You won't die. But in reality, all that was happening was Satan was making people live for him and his enmity with God. Which is why those of us who are Christians here this morning, the right attitude is the, the attitude of the creatures around the throne as we come to an end of this first point. Creatures made in his image, they sing in self-emptying worship. Verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, and then verse 14, the elders fell down and worshipped, just as they had done in chapter 4, verse 10. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their thrones, uh, crowns before the throne. So we are to sing. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the Holy Spirit fills us as we sing with thanksgiving and praise to Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ. He's the, 
The Holy Spirit is the down payment, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, who helps us to express our love to God, pouring out our thanksgiving and praise to him. But it's not just when we gather, is it? It's throughout the whole of life. Now, if this is true, if this is, if this is this heaven song, how does it affect our singing? How does it affect our singing when we gather? How does it affect our singing when we are at home, when we're driving in the car, or whatever it might be? Well, just a few things by way of application. Singing to Jesus is about Jesus, not us. Singing praise to him is not fundamentally about the feelings it produces in us, but about his worth. That's quite challenging, isn't it? Our musicians are to lead us not to new heights of self-indulgent musical ecstasy, but greater affection for Jesus, greater delight in Jesus. When we do not feel like praising him, does that mean we should not praise him? Or stir ourselves up and say, oh Lord, I'm so sorry. You are the center of history. You are worthy to be praised. I'm sorry that I'm out of tune with heaven. Please, Holy Spirit, help me. Stir up my heart. Help me see you, who you really are, Jesus. Help me to praise you. See, what will happen if it's about us? And you can go on, I'm not going to try and um, emulate, the, you, can go, you can go on YouTube and find uh, songs where they, they change all the words, you know, it's all about me, Jesus, songs. It, 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 anyway, I'll, I'll put, post it on the, on the church um, WhatsApp group. You know, what do we do when we don't feel like praising Jesus? Or we don't feel the music is enabling us to praise Jesus. Is that an excuse for us not to praise Jesus? Now, we don't want to go into duty. Oh, I must praise Jesus. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'll just... But neither do we want to go into self-indulgence. I think, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I think it's a journey from one to the other, not self-indulgence. Sorry, I haven't put that right. We, we might recognize that our hearts are not in the right place, but we need still to praise Jesus. Whatever we're going through, however we're feeling, because he is worthy. His worthiness has not changed. And maybe we can learn new ways to praise Jesus when we don't feel like it. Maybe it, the, the Spirit enables us to praise Jesus in new ways when our, our spirits are low, when life for us is tough, when we feel that he has slain me, that I'm suffering down here, Jesus. And yet the Bible says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him because he is worthy. And he was slain, so he knows how to help me to see his worthiness, the worthiness of his death in my place. He has purchased me, he has ransomed me to sing of him to him, to delight in him, with him forever. So Lord, please show us afresh the worthiness of who you are so that we may sing to you with self-emptying song.
I was going to say more, but I think I'll just leave it there. Amen.